All right, so as promised, let's uh, talk about the Eightfold Path. So just one of the things that I like to do uh, at times if I have a little more space is to kind of diagram the teachings. So uh, like if I'm working on a big whiteboard, I, I teach a college course in January at St. Mary's College. and uh, I'm glad it's a college course since I'm teaching at a college. Uh, that was redundant. But anyway, I'll, I'll do this. I'll start with the Four Noble Truths and then also then there's a, uh, a branch for the Fourth Noble Truth is the Eightfold Path. And then off, probably off all of them, but off, certainly off many of the aspects of the Eightfold Path, there are other branches. So um, if you're a visual learner, that's one way to kind of uh, get a hold of these teachings. So I'll, I'll, as I go through them, I'll talk about some of the branches. And, and to start by saying that This isn't exactly a linear process. There's a way in which we can describe it as linear, but uh, it's, it's more of a web than it is a chain. That's pretty good. Thank you. I so often get halfway to a metaphor and then I don't have anything for you, you know, so... I'm not really a metaphor-type person, so. Um, so right view as a starting point um, is the idea that we kind of hear the Dharma or we have a thought or a realization and something opens up for us. So in the 12-step world, we talk about the moment of clarity. So that's right view in the 12-step world. And I talk about that right in the beginning of uh, One Breath at a Time, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't imply any real change. Nothing's really happened. But it's kind of like the beginning. First, you have to kind of see how things work or see the truth or have some insight before you're going to start to work to change. So obviously, in, the re- in recovery, we have this realization or this insight that the, this behavior we've been doing, or you know, whether it's substance abuse or the way we relate with people or objects, has been causing us suffering. Uh, You know, and wrong view is what we call denial, right? It's not seeing, not being clear about how things work. So in the traditional Buddhist model, uh, some of the things that uh, define right view are understanding the truth of the Four Noble Truths, which means that now you're you're studying the Eightfold Path which is the fourth noble truth, and then you're flipping back to the first noble, you know, it's sort of, again, it's a web, not a a chain. So uh, another aspect of right view is understanding the law of karma, or or at least understanding that there is a law of karma, that that actions have results. So, you know, if, if someone said to you, you know, everything is impermanent, and you said, no, everything's not impermanent. There's some things that are just solid that never change. That would be considered wrong view. And so when, if you hear the teachings and you hear, wow, you know, the truth of suffering, I mean, I can remember kind of get, hearing that and kind of going, oh, right. Like when you kind of get it, 
that's right view. <laughs> okay, so it's just it's that starting point, uh, and it's so important. Uh, if we don't have that clarity, there's no chance of ch- a change. So right view, we can say, if if we're going to talk about this in a linear fashion, leads to right intention. Now that I see the way things are, I've made a decision to turn my will over, my intention. I'm going to try to do the right thing. I'm going to try to live in harmony with this view that I now have, this clarity that I have. And uh, intention in the Buddhist model is key because the Buddha said that, and at one point in one of the suttas he actually says, karma is intention. This kind of shocking statement, I mean, if if you really, I don't know if you get shocked by that, but uh, <laughs> but in terms of how we define the word karma, the word karma just means action. And you know, in this traditional Indian model, you know, Brahmanic model before pre-Hindu, but anyway, what led to Hinduism? You know, karma was all about the actions you took and the results that came from them. And the Buddha says, actually, it starts before the action. The, the, the results of the action are informed by the intention behind the action. So this puts a little bit more um, responsibility on us to be mindful of why we're doing things. Not just, yeah, you need to do the right thing, but if you're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons it's not going to really bring about the results that you want. If you're you know, being generous and acting nice to get something from someone, that's not the same as open-heartedly being of service. So the, if you look at the 12 steps, uh, you'll find that intention is actually woven throughout the steps. Step three mentions your will turning your will over. That correlates to intention. Uh, you know, it's not just t- turning your life over, but that you're going to try to, you know, uh, uh, that you're, you're going to try. <laughs> you're going to be motivated by, uh, you know, service, compassion, wisdom. Th- those are going to be the driving forces behind your actions. You find your, your life, your will in your life. Step six is also about intention, we could say. We were entirely ready. You know, that comes before the action. Entirely ready to have God removed. Step eight uh, explicitly mentions uh, that. Uh, made a list of those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them. Set the intention to make amends to them. It's slightly different language, but I think it's pointing at very much the same thing. And it's very interesting, uh, because my understanding uh, of the steps, of why there were 12 steps, was that at some point they kind of realized they, were, they had like 10 or something, and they, and they wanted to kind of fluff it up so they would get that nice 12 spiritual number, 12 apostles, 12 and a dozen. And, and um, But... They wind up with this actual wisdom uh, that that might not be uh, so obvious if you don't sort of understand that model, but it really fits with the Buddhist model 
having clarity of intention. So, but as they say, you know, if two frogs are sitting on a log and one of them decides to jump off, how many are on the log? There's still two on the log because they've only made a decision. They, they haven't. So, <laughs> intention isn't enough. We now we need to take action. So, just to frame the eightfold path, one of the ways that the uh, the eight elements are divided is by uh, the first two are considered the wisdom steps, uh, and the th- the next three are the morality, ethics, or lo- the way we live st- steps. And the last three are the meditation steps. So now we've moved from intention into action, how we're going to live, right? Speech, right? Action, which there's a branch that comes off there, which, right, action is the five precepts, to not kill, to not steal, to not harm with our sexuality, to not harm with speech, and to not use intoxicants. I found that those are very useful to follow, especially the fifth one. Uh, And then right livelihood. So this is one of the things that I like about the Eightfold Path is that it's kind of like practice these principles in all our affairs. It's it's not just, oh, be spiritual and meditate and then go about your business. It's, you know, your whole life is included. Your livelihood, your speech, all your actions And then we move into the, the meditative elements, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Um, right effort is really, I've talked about that a lot, at least implicitly today, about being mindful of our effort, of the quality of our effort. Not trying too hard, not, try, not striving for perfection, but not just accepting everything, but trying to see how can I have a goal without grasping that kind of that's what the great challenge of right effort uh, right mindfulness you know uh, the the branch that goes off right mindfulness is called the four foundations of mindfulness and uh, you know there's mindfulness of the body and senses mindfulness of feeling or or kind of um, reactivity mindfulness of mental states and then mindfulness of the dharma um, each of these obviously deserves an entire talk in itself, but I'm going to cycle back and start to talk about this as higher power rather than trying to give a so much covering the Eightfold Path talk. So right concentration, again, works in harmony with mindfulness. When, when we are meditating, generally speaking, what we're trying to do is balance effort, mindfulness, and concentration. If we're just mindful without concentration, it's hard to keep the, the mind still. If we're just concentrated without mindfulness, it's more like a hypnotic state. You're just zoned out. Uh, and both of them require effort. So, uh, again, there's this kind of blending that requires us to be attentive to what's helpful right now. There isn't like, here's how you meditate, because it depends on what's going on. It depends on your energy. It depends on your mood. It depends on uh, your experience. Uh, I mean, your past experience. And, your, you know, and what you're trying to cultivate. There's many different uh, elements to practice. So, I want to talk about these as powers. So, 
in my book, Burning Desire, which is about looking at the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings, as a higher power. Um, one of the big chunks of the book is going through the Eightfold Path um, and looking at them as powers. I might bring that up on my tablet here, uh, if I can. But um, let me just see if I can get the uh, table of contents and uh, find the section that I want. There it is. Okay. So, what I, the way I organized this chapter is that uh, each, in fact, uh, in fact, the whole book, each power that I delineate, uh, when, as I was writing the book, I kind of felt, as my writing tends to be somewhat rambling, um, I don't know why, because that, uh, the rest of the time I'm so just straightforward and direct. Um, I would get, I started to, to, to get to the end of like sections and going, now, what exactly am I saying this power is? And so I wrote a small a sentence or paragraph at the beginning of each power that tries to define that power so that it would be, okay, now that's kind of what it is. So we're starting with right view. Right view sees the truth and inspires us to follow the path. So that's how it, you know, it sees it, and then it inspires you to have right intention. It connects suffering and its cause, which is the first and second noble truth, showing us the root of our problem. It sees that actions bring results, the law of karma, thus inspiring us to live wholesomely, guided by spiritual principles. When perfected, right view is synonymous with enlightenment. So, what I'm trying to show here is the power inherent in this. So when you turn your will and your life over to the power of right view, it's, it's cultivating these qualities. It's, it's really seeing the truth. So w- one of my daily rituals is to take the uh, three refuges in the morning, refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And when I say to myself, I take refuge in the Sangha, what I'm saying to myself, and what I sometimes say literally, but sometimes I just kind of feel it, is I make the commitment to see all my experience today through the lens of truth rather than through the lens of Kevin. Now that to me is taking refuge in the Dharma. And it's turning my will and my life over to right view, because right view is seeing my experience through the lens of truth rather than through my own self-centered lens. And that has a powerful effect on my life. Thus, it's a higher power, if you will. Right intention. Right intention gives clarity, direction, and resolve on the path. With right intention, we are never entirely lost, no matter how much we stray. Keep coming back. It works. That's right intention. Okay, And Keep coming back to your breath. That's also right intention. 
Right intention guides us back to ourselves and the values of kindness and wisdom. So we, we, uh, we know how we want to be. You know, and I, I love right intention because, to me, implicit in right intention is forgiveness. Because if I didn't need to have right intention, then it would just be a matter of, you just have to do the right thing. And I can't do the right thing all the time. You know, I'm human. But I can ha- carry this intention. This is who I want to be. This is how I want to live. That's my intention. I fail repeatedly, and I come back and start again. You know, in small and large ways. Right? But because I know that intention is the thing that really informs the results of my actions. I, I really see the unfolding of my life in recovery as an embodiment of this power, the power of right intention. Because I have made all the mistakes we've all made in these 28 years, but I have kept this intention uh, to you know to grow to be a better person to you know all the things that I personally want and, and that that I want to be and my life has continued to move forward you know I, I, in the sense of well I don't know what that means move forward uh, that's just one way of of describing a sense that there is grow, growth and uh, you know certainly. My my experience with meditation has, you know, deepened. But also, uh, I've been able to do, I guess, do the things that I've wanted to do. You know, and and uh, I have something to show for it. And I, you know, I think every one of us who's been in recovery for a while can say that you know, that that uh, a lot has changed. And it's not because we haven't made mistakes, but there's something about the beauty to me. The you know, I can. I think of sobriety as you know, as as a sacred state. That there's something sacred beyond. Oh, I just don't drink or use. But that there's something more profound about it than that. It's one of the reasons why the idea of oh, well, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Well, I could drink. Doesn't have any appeal to me because. It's being sober isn't just about I don't drink. It's something completely different. It's something else I, I talk about in, in One Breath at a Time, how um, Ajanamuro at one point was talking about how people look at monks and think, God, you just give everything up. You know, there's no sex, there's no dinner, there's no car, there's no money, you know. Uh, and, you know, how do you, you know, how do you manage to, give all that stuff up. And, and Ajahn Amaro says, that's not what the monastic life is. It's, something, it's not lay life with a bunch of stuff removed. <laughs> it's something completely different. 
that you can only understand from kind of from the inside. I mean, you know, I think with wisdom we can see it from the outside too. But uh, you know, it's it's not that's uh, that's a misunderstanding. It's it's a real, it's something completely different. And that to me is a perfect description as well of of recovery. Well, I, I'm going to talk about sobriety, and so it doesn't, it doesn't relate so much maybe to some of the process addictions, but. But particularly with drugs and alcohol, it's I don't feel like I have a life like my old life, but I just don't have the drugs and alcohol. You know, it's a completely different life. It's a completely different way of being, and that's why I can talk about sobriety and being clean and sober as a sacred state that 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 I treasure. Uh, not sure how I got there. But uh, somehow intention led to that, apparently. But we can see how powerful intention is. That to me, intention, you know, the, the, I feel that like the strength of my intention is what gets me to sit down and meditate every day. And there are many, many days when it doesn't feel like anything's happening or I don't feel like doing it. But invariably, at some point, I it all comes back around and I realize that, wow, that three months of being in the desert, you know, metaphorically in my meditation actually really helped my practice deepen. And I, I couldn't see it then. But if I had just said, oh, well, I don't really feel like meditating, it's not really working, and stopped then, that momentum that then carries on to the next thing wouldn't be there. Uh, and and it's uh, so that to me is that intention to just stay on the path. You know, it's not about what I like or don't like. It's just that's this is the path. Yeah. And so I guess I'd have to say what, what comes up for me as I say those things about right view and right intention that I think maybe implicit in these two is faith, and it's something we don't talk about a lot in the Buddhist world, uh, although. Uh, this gentleman is looking at Sharon Salzberg's book with the title Faith. Uh, and in fact, faith is a, a, a foundation power uh, in, in traditional Buddhist teachings. Uh, you know, because uh, many of the people who have adopted Buddhism in the West are kind of coming, trying to get away from faith-based religions, a lot of Dharma teachers don't want to sort of talk about faith so much and, and certainly when we say faith in Buddhism we aren't talking about blind faith or faith in some magical power but um, but there is a faith that uh, you know, it'll get better <laughs> or that there is a process here, there is a path uh, you know, and right view implies that as well that because when you have right view, it's like, I mean, it's like so many people with, oh yeah, I read a lot of Buddhist books, and they, they get it, they know, they have faith, but then they don't have strength of intention to act on the faith. Uh, you, you, need, you need both. Um, and, you know, to go up the hill here and decide to sit a 10-day retreat, that takes faith. If you've never done that before, you know, you've heard about it. People have talked about it. It sounds good, but, you know, I don't know if I can do it. People will so often say to me, oh, well, I, I couldn't be silent for 10 days. Believe me, 
that is not the issue when you're up there. You know, uh, that just, you know, there's much bigger concerns. Uh, or I couldn't sit still for that long. These kind of things. Like, yeah, you could, you could, and uh, but the. You know, the faith we have to have is that there's a value in doing those things, in facing those challenges. That's, that's what the, why we need the faith, to give us gives the strength to, to face those challenges. All right. So, the power of intention. The higher power of intention. I just want to keep you on track here. You know, people are always like, yeah, but what's your higher power? Right speech, right speech transforms our relationships, bringing harmony into social interactions. Through the power of speech, we heal our wounds and give of our wisdom. Speech is so powerful. You know, just that little dialogue you had this morning, you could feel just the energy that came from it. Mentioned one of the gentlemen who mentioned about... uh, the Buddha's teaching on uh, that noble friends and noble conversation are the whole of the holy life. Uh, that, uh, at some point, he said, and that, uh, I mean, this is how our relationships mostly are formed. I mean, sure, certainly there's nonverbal interaction and lots of things that happen that don't involve words, but really that's kind of the core of our relationships. And and for many people, it's how they make their... I mean, that's how I make my living, is talking. You know, <laughs> Lots of people do that. Salesmen, you know, all kinds of businessmen, and business people, uh, therapists, and, you know, uh, so many... So uh, speech is tremendously powerful. We, we look at some of the great uh, political speeches that have been transforming. I mean, we still recite many of these great speeches, and, and then there are some that we try to forget, you know, like Hitler. You know, I mean, he was, his speech was very powerful. He hypnotized a whole country, more or less. That's my sense of it anyway. So uh, how we use speech is, is very powerful and, and takes a lot of work. You know, uh, I'd say it was back in the mid-90s when I kind of made the resolution to start to really apply the principles of right speech. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just uh, an ongoing job. You know, it, it just really takes a lot of care. But, you know, when I find myself in the midst of an argument with my wife because I said something stupid, you know, I realize, wow, I mean, all, one little stupid thing can ju- is so powerful. And one really good thing also can be really healing. So um, this is a higher power. You know? What I want to say, you know, I was raised, I was the youngest of five boys, Irish Catholic alcoholics. And you know, our mode of communication was sarcasm. And that's, that's how Kevin wants to talk, and I still do, obviously. But uh, you'd be surprised how much editing <laughs> I do. Um, gosh, last just on an aside, I uh, was watching uh, TV with my daughter last night. It was probably Sports Center or something. Uh, and 
she, she's 15 and she just finished uh, uh, working as a counselor in training for her day camp in Berkeley, the camp that she went to for 10 years and then now she graduated to be a counselor. And she said, and I forget in what context she said it, but she said, uh, Naomi, who which was her boss, I guess, uh, in, in her evaluation, she said I should work on my sarcasm. And I was like, oh, honey, I'm sorry. <laughs> said, you can blame that on me. Well, actually, the first thing I said was, so did she say you should be, like, more sarcastic? No. <laughs> yeah. said, yeah, because my daughter was working with the five-year-olds. She said, yeah, the five-year-olds don't really understand sarcasm. And my feeling is it's never too early to, tra- tra- to start them. But apparently... That wasn't the approach. So. Hmm. All right. So that's you know that's seeing the karma that I've passed on to my daughter. Poor kid. All right. I think we're doing okay time-wise. I actually I made a schedule for myself. <laughs> I don't believe in following it, but it reminds me of what I planned. So right action. Right action triggers the power of karma. It is a simple guide to God's will <laughs> and puts us in harmony with the moral fabric of the universe. Right action transforms our relationships. And you don't have to write this down. Just buy my book. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Right action transforms our relationships with others by building trust and unity. It transforms our relationship with ourselves by building self-esteem, blamelessness, and clarity. Hmm. So the five precepts, uh, uh, I'm tempted to, uh, I'm just going to mention them again. So I take the training precept, that's how they're written, the training precept to refrain from killing any living beings. I take the training precept to refrain from taking that which is not given to steal. I take the training precept to refrain from harming others with uh, my sexuality. I take the training precept to refrain from harming others with speech. I take the training precept to refrain from using intoxicants that cloud the mind. So, if you want to know how powerful these precepts are, consider what would happen to the world if everyone in the world followed just one. You can pick anyone. If all people stopped killing people, just people, not even all living beings, just people, the world would be completely transformed. If all people stopped taking what was not given and all the implications of that, the world would be completely transformed. If people stopped harming each other sexually, the world would be completely transformed. If people stopped abusing speech, just lying, wow, that would be a really different world. Or if everyone stopped using intoxicants. Any one of those would completely change the world. And, you know, when you hear them, I mean, I remember first studying Buddhism when I wasn't sober yet, thinking, oh, you know, those are cute, you know. Those are good, you know. Yeah, I'm good with that. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's cool, you know. Like, that was grade school Buddhism. Why I wanted, like, how do we get enlightened? You know, come on, give me the the high teachings. But you realize, this is 
this is a powerful teaching when we actually follow it. And, and what, one of the things I love about kind of the Buddhist approach is instead of taking the precepts and trying to interpret them in a narrow fashion, kind of in the lawyerly fashion, instead we try to, what are the potential implications or broadest meaning of this? And take that on as the precept. So, for instance, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the intoxication of television, and the, you know, the intoxication of food, and the way, all the ways that we can intoxicate ourselves, all the ways that we, we can take what's not given. You know, as, well, as people living in, in the United States, we're already kind of taking more than our share, just without even meaning to, you know. Uh, so you can we really look at this in the broadest way, not as like to feel bad or to feel shame about it, but to to try to how can I uh, more more completely fulfill these teachings and the and the spirit of compassion and wisdom that are implied in these teachings. Well, the precepts are great. And right livelihood. Right livelihood builds the fabric of a just, compassionate society. It puts the power of love into action and makes real our goals and intentions. Again, we can, you know, kind of separate our spiritual life from our, from our work. But when we do that, we're kind of losing this huge part of our life, giving up this huge area, this rich area for um, spiritual growth. And it doesn't mean we all have to, you know, quit working working, and, you know, go work in the tenderloin with the homeless or something. You know, right livelihood to me is founded in our intention. What am I bringing to my work? If I'm working in a cafe and I'm just doing that with great compassion and love and wanting to make the best cup of coffee for people that to me is right livelihood you know you're acting out of service and love you know and if you're a doctor and you're you know you're a great surgeon and you're just doing it to you know build your third house in monterey then wow you know you it might look like you know your action is like right livelihood being a doctor but you know your intention behind it is you know is selfish so it's not you know, doing that perfect, like, spiritual, get a job at Spirit Rock, you know. <laughs> uh, don't. <laughs> I sh- really should not say that. <laughs> but it's fun. And that's what's important for me. I just, I'm just, want to have fun. Just like girls. But again, you know, the, the power of our work. Having, having a child, and I'm sure many of you are parents, um, you know, and you, you watch kids grow up, and, and when they're young, of course, all they want to do is play. And they go to school, and gradually school becomes more challenging and more difficult, and it becomes more like work. And at a certain point, your hope is that your child's going to realize that the real joy and satisfaction of life is found in work. 
not that there isn't others, other joys and satisfaction, but that really one of the core elements of, of most adults' life that brings really meaning and richness to it is our work. And it was very exciting for me to see my daughter with her first job this summer and that she was really wanted to show up on time. And I could see she just really wanted to do a good job and was just really excited and engaged. And it wasn't like, oh, I got to go to work again. Uh, when's my paycheck coming? It was it, it, when the paycheck came, it was like this bonus to her. Wow. And I get paid for this. And that was just beautiful. You know, it's just exactly what I would like to see. And, uh, you know, so so. Uh, Livelihood, I think, you know, we we really uh, have to find a way, a kind of work that's that we can bring meaning to, that we can bring our right intention to, uh, but and that resonates for us. And, you know, it's it's one of the hardest things. There's no doubt, especially in a in a world and an economy that doesn't really value service uh, in the way that we might want it to. You know, um, you know our our uh, economy has become so crazy in terms of being top heavy uh, that uh, it becomes difficult. I mean, obviously, it's it's always difficult. You know, I'm sure throughout history for people to make a living, but uh, but certainly given the abundance of this country, I think it's a lot more difficult. <laughs> To be be comfortably middle class than uh, than it needs to be. Anyway, that's probably left better to a different different uh, venue. Um, I'm just gonna, that, but because I was sort of branching off into politics, it reminds me of something that that I just wanted to bring up, and I'm, I'm not going to say a lot about this, but um, a couple months ago there was a, a Western Buddhist teachers conference held here at Spirit Rock. And, um, and before the conference, uh, several sanghas, several Buddhist communities uh, in the UK and in the States sent open letters to the teachers of the conference asking that they address climate change and global warming more directly in their teachings uh, and and addressing the suffering that comes of that. Um, which uh, I th- thought that was really uh, a very lovely, I mean, a, a very beautiful thing. And my first reaction, maybe because of my uh, tendencies, was to kind of think, I don't want to get up and just, you know, rant or lecture or, you know, what What can I say? And to some extent, it's speaking to a Buddhist group is kind of, uh, you know, speaking to the converted uh, or preaching to the choir. Um, but, I, but I do think that this is kind of part of this is part of right livelihood for all of us to, to see how our how our work impacts the environment and impacts the world. I, you know, for instance, I I uh, you know I get on planes just about every month to fly somewhere to teach, and I'm kind of like, wow, here's a, here's a little carbon footprint getting laid down there. On the other hand, I'm going and I'm teaching to 
30 or 40 people, it would, it's better for me to fly to them than all of them to fly to me, I suppose. Um, <coughs> but, uh, well, I don't, I don't have much more to say about that, except that, that um, when I kind of, one, there, there was uh, on one um, listserv that I'm part of of a bunch of teachers or sort of junior teachers, they were kind of shouting at one of the uh, senior teachers, you know, in email. And it sounded loud, loud to me. And one of, the, one of the Spirit Rock teachers, and he came back and said, well, actually, there's, this is going on. And it turned out that there's somebody associated with Spirit Rock, and I forget the connection, but it's somebody who's been working with the teachers here who is actually like directly involved in the Obama administration. Because one of my thoughts was, yeah, a bunch of like California Buddhist teachers giving talks, like who's going to pay attention to that? And it turns out that there actually is this direct connection from Spirit Rock to the White House. I was like, oh, that's, that's good. <laughs> I'm impressed, you know. And, and that actually gave me a little bit of optimism about it. Uh, but I wouldn't want to be in my daughter's shoes. I told her if she wants a job, get training in environmental something, repair. Okay, moving right along. We're going to get through this. I swear to God, sorry, I just like to say that. Um, All right, I don't swear to God. (laughs) Right effort activates the power of karma, merging the power of will with the power of letting go. It's kind of the blend, right? It creates the possibility of change, and when combined with right intention, moves us toward freedom and happiness. So, right effort without right intention, eh, not so helpful. Right intention without right effort, not much happens. So, uh, they need each other. Um, And as I've talked about, kind of balancing the two, yeah? Uh, What's what's the difference between right action and right effort? Um, So, well, right action is specifically the precepts of, you know, that kind of the, it, it kind of tells you exactly what you're not supposed to do, basically, not to kill, not to steal, not to harm sexually and all that. Um, right effort. There are two main ways that the Buddha talked about right effort. Uh, the classic one is called the four great efforts, which is the branch that comes off right effort to avoid the arising of unarisen negative states. So, in other words, if you're not already in that space, try not to get, let that arise. To abandon arisen negative states. So, wow, it's come up. I need to let go of this. To cultivate unarisen positive states, like, kind of feeling neutral, see if I can cultivate some loving kindness. And fourth, to maintain arisen positive states. So I find that kind of, I mean, it's useful, but it's also kind of mechanical. And, it doesn't, and, and I found that in ordinary mind states, I'm not, it's difficult for me to really work with that because it seems so uh, 
um, mechanical, but also kind of um, trying to control. When the mind is very quiet and there's less ego aroused, there's a lot of I happening, then it becomes much more possible to cultivate the unarisen without grasping. But these are the basic things. It's basically try to stay out of trouble, try to get the good stuff going. That's right effort. The other way, which I think resonates more as kind of more organic sounding, the Buddha talked about right effort being like tuning, tuning a stringed instrument where you don't want it to be too tight and you don't want it to be too loose. It, it, to be in order for the instrument to be in tune, it kind of needs to be in between. And that's the kind of balance, which also kind of resonates with the idea of a middle way that the Buddha talked about. So it's kind of that uh, right effort is really kind of about the, the quality of energy. In, in, that, in that framework, it's kind of about the quality of the energy that we're bringing to something. And so it isn't the specific actions, like right action is about specific actions. It's just more the quality of the, of the effort or energy. Escaped that one. Did you have Okay. All right, we're going to make it. Trust me. You know, the, just to say that the, the day is scheduled to go till 5. I like to let people out early because uh, the afternoons tend to be longer than the mornings uh, in, in, terms, in terms of our perception of time. So, oh, well, so I actually uh, have to go back to get mindfulness because in my book I actually cover mindfulness as a, as a separate chapter. Okay, come on. Oh, uh, let's see. Can I make? Oh, there we are. Sorry. Table of contents. Okay. Let's see. The higher power of mindfulness is the power of attention and non-reactivity. So, uh, this is somewhat of a critical idea that uh, being mindful is not just about being aware of what's happening but also noticing how we tend to react to what's happening and not getting caught in those reactions. And that's what allows us to kind of have a balance in that. It opens us to wisdom and insight through clear seeing. So this is, I would say, self-evident, that if we are not paying attention, that um, we can't really have insight if we aren't able to look. Clearly. Mindfulness is the foundation of all spiritual growth as it reveals the truth of the way things are internally and externally. So, with the Eightfold Path, we can say that mindfulness is the partner of all seven of the other qualities. Without mindfulness, uh, the rest of the elements can't really uh, manifest properly. Right view implies mindfulness. Right intention, in order to know what our intention is, we must be mindful. 
right speech <laughs> requires mindfulness, right action, right livelihood, right effort. All of these, we, we need to be mindful in order to know whether we're doing them in this skillful way. So the Buddha really put mindfulness as kind of the crowning element of practice, the lead horse. So right concentration increases the power of the mind to be present and to look deeply at what is true. So yeah, we can be mindful for a breath or two breaths, but can you sustain that? Most of us, well, I mean, it's not a matter of most of us can or can't. It's, It's certainly a challenge, I think, for anyone. But what allows you to sustain your attention is concentration. So if you find that you're really staying with your breath, it's not because you're just really staying mindful. It's because you're staying mindful with concentration. The word concentration isn't the best translation for the word samadhi, but um, I like the translation calm abiding because it's concentration in our culture kind of implies this kind of laser-like focus. And a lot of the... concentration that comes in mindfulness meditation is more spacious and open and kind of an observing of the arising and passing, just things coming and going. Um, And sometimes it might narrow, but it doesn't have to be narrow. Uh, And there's a sense of this calm abiding is kind of just resting in the present, just being here and having kind of a steadiness. Uh, concentration is incredibly powerful. So in terms of higher powers, uh, you know, in, in the traditional texts, you know, it says that there are these psychic powers that come with very deep states of concentration. And the, they are just like the miracles that, that saints you know, perform, you know, walking on water, being in two places at once, being able to move through walls. Um, you know, in, in the Catholic Church, you know, being able to do these things, uh, you're kind of rewarded with the sainthood. It means you're this, I don't know what it means exactly. I don't even know what, really what a saint is, now that I think of it. But, you know, it's interesting that the Buddha is just sort of down to earth. He doesn't put any mystical or metaphysical meaning on things. He just says, oh, well, if your mind gets very, very concentrated, then you have these other capacities. And it's not the point. It's just, oh, that's just happens. It's more like a side effect. You know? <coughs> the point is to, if you can let go, then that's a power. In Buddhism, that's the... You know, uh, superpower, you know, is to let go. It's not to walk on water. That's, there's a great story of the, you know, the young, the young monk who uh, is ready to really go deep into his practice, and and his, the master says, okay, well, there's a cabin up by that river, so go up there and 
and spend a few months uh, in silent meditation. And he goes up and he walking meditation, sitting meditation, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month, deep, deep, deep states of concentration. That, and, uh, you know, just these transcendent experiences. And the, one day the master comes and says, oh, so you've been practicing? Yes, yes, I've been practicing very hard every day, very devout. I haven't, I haven't wasted a minute. Very good, very good. So um, what have you learned? And the monk says, let me show you. Walks out, walks on the river, walks on water, across the river and back. Master looks at him. You spent your time learning to do that? There's a bridge right up there. That's a complete complete waste of time. So... The power of concentration brings calm, coolness, and clarity. So when we, or when we first hear about meditation, usually we envision this kind of peace and, and blissful kind of state. And then maybe you start to meditate, and it doesn't quite feel like that. But that's actually is possible, and it does come, and it, it's concentration that allows that calm and bliss and, and, and uh, peace. Um, and concentration depends upon certain causes and conditions. It depends upon silence, stillness, and time. Without those, it simply can't ar- arise to this level. And if we don't have the time to be silent and still, it's just not going to happen, which is okay. You know, everybody doesn't need to become a jhana master. But if you want what we got, you got to do what we did. You know, and in this case, to develop deep concentration, you got to go up the hill or go to some retreat center and spend some time and do it. And, and most people are quite capable of getting to very powerful, beautiful states. Uh, not everyone feels the longing or the, the call to do that. But I like to talk about it and make it clear that there, there is this potential. So you know, uh, it, there are many benefits to come from practice, and that's one of them. It's not... Not all of them. I will say that one of the uh, benefits also from calm abiding, and as I say, coolness, the calm abiding or concentration cools the emotions. And this is again why when we see monastics, they seem very calm and peaceful because they are practicing more than we are and they are able to sustain these states of calm abiding, which cools the emotions and allows really more serenity. And, uh, you know, most of us, certainly I, choose to live a more active life. And I've I've gotten into many of these states, but I don't sustain them throughout the year because I don't practice for four hours a day or six hours a day and kind of live in this very... uh, austere environment that a monk would live in, relatively austere. So, but 
but I think it's important to acknowledge that that's, that's there, that's available and very powerful. Um, and again, if we put it in terms of the third step, turning your will and your life over to the power of concentration means that you spend the time to be quiet and still. And that's turning your will and your life over. You know, uh, and if, if you want that, that's what you do to get it. So there are many other higher powers in the Dharma. Uh, but uh, this is, a, I think, a good um, kind of set of powers to look at. Um, so let me open it up one more time for, uh, for any questions or comments about this material. Yeah. The unnaming. I'm going to do that practice next. Uh, and, and before I do it, I will talk about it. Yes. The unnaming feelings. I find it kind of interesting that um, given how much we generally focus on thoughts and feelings, that there's no right thought or right feeling. And I can see the uh-huh. that some of these could be architected that they're underlying, but mm-hmm. I guess that's just the comment I wanted to make. Sometimes right view is translated as right thought, uh, it's meaning kind of it's the right way to think about things. It's the right, right way to interpret experience. Um, but no feeling, no, not so much. Uh, it, the, we encounter the, the kind of exploration of feelings under right mindfulness, but it's about being mindful of feeling, not about having some particular feelings. But, but we could say that certainly uh, when the Buddha teaches loving kindness, he's, you know, these are, well, actually, yeah, I think we can, can talk about it in this way, that the, the Buddha said the four, what is called the four Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, are the four highest emotions. So actually, though, that's what I would call right, right emotion, uh, you know, which that could be a difficult, you know, I'm not sure I want to carry that around on my shoulder. But... Um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, it's like that's kind of where you want to incline the mind. So, for instance, you know, when, you, when somebody is behaving in a way that's irritating to you, to incline the mind away from irritation and anger towards compassion for them, oh, they're acting out of their own pain, something like that, you know, is, is kind of, if you were going to say, you're going to try to... Uh, turn your will and your life over to, to uh, those right emotions. It would be in, inclining, inclining the mind towards those positive views. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Thank you for bringing it up. Yes. I have a question that goes back. Thank you. I have a question that goes back to something you said earlier this morning. I think it was this morning. You talked about um, clinging to identity as potentially creating suffering. Yes. 
And I'm aware that in many of the 12 steps programs, there's an importance around, I am an alcoholic, I am an addict. And I was just wondering if you could speak to that, please. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I consider identifying myself as an alcoholic as a skillful means. This is a term, if you're familiar with the term, upaya. Um, And so... It's the understanding founded. Uh, I understand that this is not who I am, but the reminder that I can't drink if I want to have the life that I have is helpful. And so it's just for me a reminder, uh, and uh, rather than a. Uh, a label and like identifying with it, and, and I know I hear that question and, or concern from people in Buddhist uh, circles from time to time, and I think the one of the things that I like to say is that, especially when someone's really like, "Well, uh, I'm don't I'm not taking on that identity," like to sort of doing it in a self righteous Buddhist way. What I kind of want to say to them is, "Well." When you stop identifying with any other view of yourself, then go ahead and drop that one too. But, you know, it's not, if, if you're really looking for total purity of, I, have, I'm, I don't identify with the idea of self at all, I don't have that. You know, well, make sure that you really don't have that with anything before you decide that you're not going to use this one. I mean, I find it useful that when my daughter says "daddy," I know who she's talking to, you know, and that and that I don't go, uh, "I'm not daddy." There is no self, you know, so don't like try to label me. Okay, they're just <laughs> functional terms that that are useful, and if and if it outlives its usefulness, that's fine. You know, I, I mean. The t- truth is, I don't know whether I'm an alcoholic. You know, I never was. Uh, I went, didn't go through rehab. I, I didn't get DUIs for some reason. Um, you know, I, I never was diagnosed as an alcoholic. So um, it's not. It stopped being important to me whether I was technically an alcoholic or not a long time ago, uh, because. I'm pretty sure that if I started drinking again, my life would get worse. And that's what's important to me. Um, When I was drinking, I had problems, and I couldn't deal with them. Now I have problems, and I deal with them. That's really the big difference to me. Uh, And, of course, there's the irony that most of the time when people decide that they're not alcoholics... What's the first thing they do? Go out and have a drink. Well, I would think if you weren't an alcoholic, you know, maybe next month you'd be at a wedding and you'd have a glass of champagne. But I'm not an alcoholic. Uh, are the bars still open? Uh, you know, you key or whatever. That joke always works, I just have to say. Uh, Eventually, everybody will have heard it, and they'll stop laughing. But so far, so good. I think there was a hand up over here. Yes. Um, 
Um, I don't know if this is going to be more confusing, but for <laughs> me, with the idea, when I came to um, Dharma first, the whole, you know, getting rid of the self was terrifying. It was, well, oh no, it was like disappearing into an abyss, but something that was helpful, and I'm not quite sure which teacher I came to it through, um, but it's not that there's no self. There's also no no self. <laughs> so it's not it's not one or the other that there's 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 both self and no self. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which is weird, but I found it helpful at the Well, I'm glad that works for you. Uh, <laughs> I would I, I would go back to the the term anatta which is translated as sometimes as no self. Uh, it's kind of I've heard it refined to not self. That is, my thoughts are not myself. My feelings are not myself. My body is not myself. None of those things are myself. And the the Buddha didn't say there's no self. He just said none of these things were self. Which is very typical of his teachings. So many of his teachings are in negative terms, non-ill will, non-grasping. Uh, you know, what we would call love for non-ill will and letting go for non-grasping. But he used these negative terms. And one of the reasons, and not self, it, that's not self. One of the reasons that I think he does this is that he's not giving you something, some concept to latch on to. You know, if he says, uh, you know, love everybody. I mean, not that, that does come through, but, you know, the right intention is to love. Well, then all of a sudden you're like, okay, I have to love. But instead he says, right intention is non-ill will and non-clinging. Then it, it doesn't give you something to kind of like latch onto and say, this is what it's supposed to be. And not self, the same thing. Oh, I, there's no self. Okay, right. Um, I, I get, I get, you know, I'm interested in the teachings more on a practical level than I am on a theoretical level. And what I see is that I have many selves. It's another, just flipping it, you know. I have many identities. I have daddy. I have, you know, Kevin teacher. I have uh, uh, Kevin golfer, Kevin husband. You know, all those, all those things are, are different identities that we move, we move through. None of them is solid or defines me. They're all useful and have a f- function. And, uh, and my job is to be present enough to act skillfully within that role when I'm in that role, and especially to not confuse my roles. And people do that, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Hello. Hello. Um, this has to do with um, uh, re- my wrestling with the third step prayer and, um, and the notion of um, higher power's will for me. Uh-huh. And how I've coped is I've translated into what is uh, I can I can relate to this notion of a greater wisdom that I'm very um, ignorant compared to the wisdom the trans- universal wisdom or the wisdom of even a 12-step meeting mm-hmm. that uh, 
that's greater than my wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so I can open up to that in a third step prayer. But as soon as I hear God's or higher powers will for me, like there's a plan, I recoil and I, I'm kind of getting that this is the wisdom. I think I'm getting that this is, this is like my version of wisdom. You're saying open to wisdom, mm-hmm. not so much a plan. Right, absolutely. Yeah, that the idea of a plan definitely goes against uh, Buddhist principles. Uh, as I said before, the Buddha said that there was nothing, nothing was preordained. And that in this, in this moment, you can change karma. Uh, you can't change all of it. I mean, there's some things that, are, you know, there's a momentum from past actions and past intentions. But, um, but we can uh, move it. Um, so I think of God's will, first of all, as being whatever is, you know, it's like, oh, that's what's happening, you know. And, and what ha- what's happening, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but just for the purposes of the, this conversation, what's happening is a result of past karma. You know, different people have taken different actions, I've taken actions, and they are manifesting in this way, in this moment. That Karma is powerful, and it has this effect. I can't change all the past actions and intentions that have com- culminated in this manifestation in this moment. So that's, if I want to call that God's will, I can use that language, and, I, and for me, that makes sense within my you know, framework of my understanding of things. So that's one thing. God's will is what is. I also look to right action, the precepts, as being the... So let's take it out of God and put it in the law of karma again. You know, the, the law of karma doesn't have a will, so the word will doesn't really fit with this. But it does fit with the idea of powers, that I need to align myself with this power. And and so that you know the the law of karma will uh, let's say support me in following the precepts. You know that that and that's so that makes as much sense for a Buddhist in terms of will God's will as anything. That's God's will. Follow the precepts. You know, uh, be mindful. That's the will of karma uh, or the you know the it's the implications it's of what what karma is saying you know follow these things this is this is if you're looking for guidance there it is you know so if that's what god's will is for you like guidance then to me there it is now i know there are people uh who feel that they actually get kind of psychic guidance and you know that's just not something i get but I never even like hallucinated when I took LSD, so I think I'm kind of I'm not very open psychically, you know. Um, um, someone who came to one of my retreats—I don't know if I have this in here. 
wrote a what a Buddhist version of the third step prayer. It's not in here. I'll see if I can find it as we're taking the next question. Because there was, uh, well, there are some more hands. That's good. Okay, we're going we're gonna to try to wrap this up soon. But uh, a couple more questions. Hi. So Hi. if you're not oh, a daddy and you're not a teacher and you're not a golfer, then what are you? Or who are you? I mean... Mm-hmm. Well, why is it important to be something? And so I didn't say I wasn't those things. I, th- I am those things when I'm those things. That's how I view it. Okay. I'm just, yeah. But none of them are, you know, I, I can't say that, that any one of those defines me. And, you know, we could say, oh, well, all of them together define you. Okay, but maybe tomorrow I'm going to take up ping pong. And so then I'm a ping ponger, so then I have to expand. So it's not, none of those things are really the identity. There, there was, uh, I had an English professor at Cal. Actually, he was sober, a really wonderful guy, uh, Julian Boyd. And uh, he's dead now, so I can say his name. Uh, I mean, because I just broke his anonymity. Um, <laughs> And uh, he he was in the, you know in this really esoteric kind of field of kind of linguistics, and he would get called as a um, expert witness to answer questions like, "What is a smoker? If you smoke a cigarettes occasionally, are you a smoker?" You know. I mean, that's, if you, you know, would you call somebody who just picked up a cigarette every couple of weeks a smoker or not a smoker, you know? And how many cigarettes do you have to smoke to be a smoker? And so, you know, it's about identity. It's like, what, when does identity become identity? So there was one more hand up, up front here. First, I want to say thank you. Today has been really interesting and healing for me. Oh, um, good. Thank you. One of the things I struggle with is um, how much of my passion for this learning to let out in meetings. Mm-hmm. So in my spiritual, my twelve step community, it's like I want to speak the same language as the other people and do the God talk, and I'm pretty good with doing the interpretation when I hear what they say. Yeah. I can't stand the phrase "there but the grace of God go I," but I can still sort of just accept it. So, do I just keep doing that? Do I try to, you know, let my do I say whatever I want to say? I mean, what? How do you balance that? This kind of I'm sure we're probably all kind of wondering that on some level. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, Heather Sundberg, who my teaching colleague who teaches that retreat with me. I think uh, she refers to something, I think it's from Star Trek, like the universal translator uh, uh, that she uses in meetings uh, you know, to translate everything into Dharma language for her. And I, I think that's helpful. I, I generally, I don't so much translate, translate it in language, but more in my heart. You know, that I feel like, okay, God, and I have a sense of what that means for me. And, and, and th- there's also sort of a, a devotional element to that, too, a, a letting go, a surrender to higher power. <laughs> it's like just 
the universe is so powerful and life is so powerful that I just have to surrender and, and there's a, a beauty to that as well. Uh, generally, I really stay out of any uh, specific Buddhist language. I might talk about meditating uh, or even being on a retreat or something, but not but only in just contextualizing some comment I'm making, not as like, yeah, these retreats are really great. Everybody should go be, you know, go to Spirit Rock or something. You know, I'm, I just, uh, because when, in the, on the few occasions when maybe I went to meetings in the Midwest or something or whatever, that somebody was sort of promoting Christianity, I, it, it would make me feel so uncomfortable that I really don't want to be that person as a Buddhist, you know, in a meeting and, and, and harm and alienate people for whom that really doesn't work, you know, for whom it might really be, like, wrong, you know. Um, so I'm trying to be very respectful of that. And it's also one of the reasons why I helped to form the Buddhist Recovery Network, so that there are Buddhist recovery meetings that are not affiliated with any 12-step program but that uh, kind of share the same form and principles with a little bit more meditation and the opportunity to share all you want about the Dharma. And, and they're usually led by somebody who's qualified to, to uh, you know, at least kind of teach meditation and give the basics. And uh, uh, so th- th- there's, you know, the, the, if you look at the website, BuddhistRecovery.org, okay. it lists all uh, the meetings that we know of. And... Um, so that's that's something that's growing, and, and I find that very rich. And I, and I love on my retreats, you know, on my residential retreats, I usually, if not always, have meetings like that at the end of the the day, and they're they're really really rich and sweet, you know. It's, and it's it is nice to be able to let out your kind of Buddhist roots in a in that context, and and really combine the two. It's, it's very sweet, and I, I get a lot out of those. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's. I want to move into the final stage here, and um, so talk. I want to talk a little bit about this unnaming feelings practice that's on, at the bottom of the handout, stage two. <laughs> I just make this stuff up. It's got to sound dramatic. Um, so as I say, practice with being with feelings at first. Kind of connect with the feelings. And then notice the name you put on feelings. Asking these questions. Where did this name come from? Like, is it like something, you know, psychological, scientific? Is it something your family said, you know, you're like this? Uh, Or is it for like a Dharma term? And what history is attached to this named feeling? So... You know, is this like how you've kind of characterized yourself? Oh, I feel like this all the time. What belief or judgment about yourself is in this named feeling? And finally, drop the name and try to feel the actual physical experience of the feeling. What physical, not psychological description can you give this feeling? How would you experience this feeling if you dropped the name and just felt it as physical sensation? So if you have one breath at a time, you know tonight or tomorrow, re- read that feeling, feelings three, and you'll see where this this kind of came out of. Well, it's kind of, uh, I was on a retreat, and I kept 
waking up and having this feeling in the morning that I associated, that I kind of named as fear. It seemed like fear, and it was uncomfortable. Like I, don't, and I didn't want to meditate and, uh, in that fear, and so I would kind of like put off meditating. And, and finally, I just kind of turned to it and tried to see what it was if it wasn't fear, if it was just a... And, and then it just became... I just felt it as this feeling, this sensation. And I stopped... And I realized that I was afraid of the fear. And because I was afraid of the fear, it was altering my behavior. I wasn't meditating with it because I was afraid of it. And I thought it meant something, you know. And it was like, oh, this is like, you know, it's just funny how feelings, we attribute meaning to feelings. That sometimes, And finally I decided that it was just a sensation that I had when I woke up in the morning, you know. And if I took away the meaning and the naming and the fear, that's all it was. And it stopped being a problem. It was just, oh, this is how I, the feeling that I have, the sensation I have when I wake up in the morning. Or even the feeling, or the, even if you want to say the emotion that I'm having when I wake up in the morning. And nothing more than that, because it just always would dissolve after a little while. So I just decided to not let it bother me. So that's kind of where this came from. And it, and it is kind of that not-self, because when it had a name, that feeling had a self. That makes sense? I mean, you know, a chair, it's a self. Right when I name it a chair, if I if I stop calling it a chair, it's just that, you know, suchness, as they call it in Zen, just isness. No name, no word, and that's that's also not self, you know, not letting there not be a self in my feelings. That's a pretty good spot to get to in this day, I think, because it's a pretty you know, it's a pretty high, high practice, uh, um, and I've, it's it's nice to kind of build ourselves to that. So, so I just want to sit with this a little bit. So let's just, and, and I'm going to conclude this with some loving kindness practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.